Cosby bolts? Is that all you got? All I need is one more basket. Oh, yeah? Well, bring it on, Shack Attack. I'll just foul you and watch you miss free throw after free throw. What? Bring it. Oh. All right. Okay, come on then, huh? Oh, The world is not the same anymore. I thought I had it all figured out. I'm gonna work hard, get a good job, raise a family, retire young and die an old man. If I can do that, death won't be so bad. I'll just cease to exist. I would have lived a good life, but you ruined that for me. Now I can't stop thinking about death. It's hard to imagine that you're just gone. Forever. Marcus, something I've been meaning to tell you. Oh yeah? What's that? I'm sick, bro. <laughs> you look sick out there, man. No, it's, it's nothing like that. Doctor says I have another six months. Tops. Come on. You serious? After you got sick, you asked me what I thought happened when someone dies. I should have said something reassuring about heaven and going to a better place. But I didn't want to sugarcoat it. I told you what I've always believed. That people just cease to exist. There is nothing else after death. I remember the day you told me you believed you were going to heaven. That you had accepted your fate. That you had peace. I don't know why I tried so hard to convince you heaven didn't exist. If you can hear me, I'm sorry. I'd give anything to know where you are. If what I believe about life is true, then your death is a tragedy, a life cut short. But if what you believed about life is true, then a whole new journey has just begun. I wish I could believe that. Pretty big question, isn't it? Big question, is there life after death? <clears throat> That's the fifth question we're asking in our series here as we're wrapping up the, what is this series? Thinking series. <clears throat> Hopefully you got your thinking cap on. 
hopefully you're not, I don't know if this is a word, but I'm going to become one, tryptophaned, tryptophaned, tryptophaned out, your, your, your body and brain are asleep. So hopefully that's not the case. Uh, as we've already mentioned, hopefully you, ha- hopefully you had a good Thanksgiving and you're ready for uh, what's coming. I know that tomorrow morning they're starting the decorating of this place. So uh, don't say I didn't tell you because uh, I might forget at the end. If you want to help with that, if you're free, you can come over and help sometime tomorrow morning. See Joel for more information. Well, we had a good Thanksgiving and... Um, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for, especially this question. You know, this is the series where we've been asking what <clears throat> I believe are life's biggest questions. And this isn't just for you. I realize that there are a lot of you who you don't really need these answers so much to hold on to your faith, but you might need them to pass on in your faith. You might, you might need to talk to somebody else. Maybe you already have. You've engaged someone who's got one of these big questions, and you didn't know how to answer them. You didn't know what to say to them. And I want to tell you something. This is going to increase. People are going to be asking increasingly these questions. And unfortunately, because Christianity now has been kind of relegated to a side thing, you know, it's not mainstream anymore. It used to be the 1950s, 60s, 70s. It was popular to be a Christian, to go to church. Christianity has been uh, pushed aside a little bit, <clears throat> and now you, you almost have to have a, a good reason. You have to have justification for why you're living your life with, the, with God in it, with the church in it, with the Bible in it. And if you, if you haven't experienced this, this is what's going on in our culture right now. And more importantly, <clears throat> maybe not so much for you, but more importantly for your children and your grandchildren, they're going to need to know in an age where Christianity is shrinking in this country, they're going to need to know why it is they believe in God and why they serve him, why they worship him, why they uh, choose to live their lives for him. So that's what this series <clears throat> really been about. It's about giving you answers, helping you with your conversations, maybe for yourself, maybe for someone close to you but also for those out there you're going to interact with. It's been called the Thinking Series. We've asked questions like this, does my life have meaning? But you know, there's that feeling out there that life doesn't have any meaning. You live, do whatever you can, get as much as you can, and, and then you die, and you're done. We said your life has meaning because we believe God created you, right? God created you in his image, and he created you for eternity, which means your life has meaning because somebody greater than you, greater than us, gave it meaning. And then that led to the question, well, then how how do I know really that God exists? Does God really exist? Now, this is the fun one, especially for young apologists like Philip and Luke Martin at our Taze Valley campus where they just finished their master's degree in apologetics because there are over 20 lines of evidence to, uh, to support our belief that God really exists. <clears throat> 20 lines. Many of those are scientific. You know, that's where our young people get blown out of the water and get converted to atheism or agnosticism in the university is when science questions come up. These science questions just, you know, the scientist, the, the professor of science, he just, he just 
you know, he just makes them feel small. Like you don't have any answers, but we have lots of answers in science. There's science answers to prove God exists. There's philosophical answers to prove God exists. There's even historical evidence to prove that God exists. And we, can, we could go down any one of those. And we talked about four of them, if you'll remember. And so that leads us to a question then, okay, okay you've, you've proven to me that God exists, so how do I get there? Do all religions lead to God? And what do we say on that? No, big fat no. In fact, no religion leads to God. Some religions don't even acknowledge that that's where they're going. They don't even acknowledge that that's where, they're, that's where they want to get to. They just want to kind of disappear into the nothingness of the, of, the, of the universe. But Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with the almighty God, the creator of the universe, through his son, Jesus Christ. You can hear from him through his word. You can, you can talk to him through prayer. You can uh, live according to his uh, uh, standards, according to his words. It's a daily, living, active relationship, just like you might have a relationship with your spouse or with a friend. That's the way we have it with Almighty God. So do all religions lead to God? No, only Christianity, but Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And then the last week's question was a big question. Why is there evil? Why is there evil? If God is real, if Christianity is true, God's supposed to be a God of love. He's supposed to be a God of power. He's good. Then why is there evil? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? And we, we talk about that. And there's, there's one good answer. There, there, you could go a lot of different ways, but there's one good answer. And the answer is that God wants a love relationship with you like we just talked about. And in order for you to love God freely, he had to give you free will. If he didn't give you free will, if, you were, if it was wired into you, if you were programmed from birth, to love and follow God, that's not love. That's slavery. That's robotics or something else. <clears throat> love lets people walk away. Like Jesus, when he talked to the rich young ruler, you remember the rich young ruler left him sad because he had great wealth. He loved his wealth more than he wanted this relationship with God. John 6, 66, and of course you that's why I remember this verse because of the address, if you will. John 6, 66 says many disciples of Jesus, when he started talking about his flesh and his blood and eating his flesh and blood, the sacrifice, the Bible says in John 6, 66 that many of them turned away and walked away. And did Jesus chase after them and say, hey, no, okay, wait a minute, if that's too much for you, if that's, that, if that's too big a price if that's too extreme for you, I'll change it. I'll, you know, I'll back off of that a little bit. No, he didn't do that, did he? He let him go. He let him go. In fact, he told his disciples, if they won't welcome you in, dust your feet off and get on down the road where somebody else will. So uh, there is evil in the world because some people choose to walk away from God and what God is and who God is, his nature and character, which is love. And when you walk away from God, and the further away from God you get, the, the more into evil you get and the more pain and suffering it causes. Are you with me? <clears throat> That's a big question that your agnostic and atheist friends are asking. There's your answer. It's really easy to understand. Now, last week I showed a picture of the little girl we sponsored for several years. 
and my wife asked me why I didn't show a better picture. And I didn't have one, but I have one now. In fact, I've got three of them. This was a little Shedlin. She was a little girl we sponsored, and she was a shining star, bright, full of life. I showed you a picture last week. And so we sponsored her all the way through the early years of her school. And then, uh, and you can see uh, this next picture is a picture of another little girl some of you might recognize there on our right, that's Floor Kenzie. <clears throat> you might remember that John and Peggy Engelmeyer adopted this little girl. But let me tell you about the difference here. When we went over there, the girl on the left, Shed Lynn, the girl we sponsored, she was the healthiest, the happiest, smartest. I mean, you could teach her English phrases and she was learning them. And she lived right there in the shadow, literally, of the church. You would have thought if anybody's going to make it, if anybody's going to survive, it's the ones right there getting the crumbs, if you will. Flora Kinsey was sick. She had problems. There were lots of medical problems, and she had a rough past. I'm convinced that if Flora Kinsey had not been adopted by the Engelmeyer, she wouldn't be alive today. She was adopted. Shedlin died. That not only makes me sad, but it makes me angry. Why is there so much pain and suffering in our world today? <clears throat> and, of course, this next picture is my favorite. She was sweet, sweet girl, sweet girl. So we asked that question last week, and, and, and it's because of the corruption and the greed in their government and evil and voodoo. Voodoo has a foothold. That's the devil in their country. There's so much wrong and that's why there's so much pain and suffering. And it happens all over the world, even in this country. So this morning, we're going to wrap it up by asking one more question. Because I think about this when I think about little Shedlin. I think about this when I think about the people in my life that I've lost. You'll think about this too when somebody in your life gets there. When you lose someone. Or perhaps when you get close to that. You'll want to know the answer to this question, and you'll want to know it for sure. Is there anything after this life? Is there life after death? <clears throat> now, we're going to, this sermon may not go the way you think it's going to go right now. Remember, I'm going to give you some equipment, some tools in your tool belt so that you can talk to your friends. And so I'm going to go to John 21 here to start things off. And John 21 is the last chapter of John. But it really could have just as easily not been written at all. Because we read from, in our focus time this morning, from the last uh, verse of John chapter 20. And it seems like, it kind of feels like there, if you're a student of the Word, it feels like John is wrapping up, doesn't it? It feels like he's wrapping up his book. And he says, uh, you know, that was John chapter 20 is the resurrection scene. So resurrection scene, and, and then he, uh, he appears to all his disciples. Everybody that needs to know I'm alive has seen him alive. And John says, I wrote these things, <clears throat> all these stories, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it seems like that should be the end. But John goes on a whole nother chapter because he wants to add something. And I think this is so important for us. So John 21, the, the ministry of Jesus is over. The 
unjust arrest and trial is over. The painful abuse and suffering he endured for us is over. <clears throat> the crucifixion's over. The resurrection is over. It's already happened. It's in the past. And these guys, these apostles, Peter, James, and John, namely, who were the inner circle, what we call the big three, they were kind of processing what they had seen. I think it was a little bit too much for them mentally and emotionally to really uh, to understand that we saw Jesus, we were with Jesus, but we saw him over time as he aged, as he weathered, and as he was killed and crucified. And then we saw him again alive, and they're trying to process this, trying to understand, is this, was this really true? Did we, was it really him? And so they went to something they knew, something that was familiar to, to them. They said, hey, let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's just take a deep breath. Let's get away for a while. They went fishing. They fished all night, and they came in. And as they were coming in the next morning, this is John 21, as they came in, they see this figure on the shore. Of course, you and I know who it is, but they didn't know. They were living in the moment. And the figure on the shore, it's a little dark still because it's not quite uh, daylight, and the figure on the shore says, hey, did you catch any fish? And they're like, no, no. Well, they don't know who it is. We didn't catch anything. Fished all night, didn't catch anything. They said, the figure on the shore said, put your net on the other side of the boat. They're like, uh-huh, yeah, right. We've heard this before, but not from you. And so they, they tried it anyway. They put the net on the other side of the boat, and literally they caught a boat load. Caught a boat load. Pull it in. And about that moment, <clears throat> when they see all these fish, John, John says, Peter, I think that's Jesus. I think that's Jesus. Peter said, you know it is, and took his, you know, you didn't have to tell Peter very much. He, he was gone. He took his outer coat off, and he jumped into the water. I think maybe, this isn't scriptural, but I just have a kind of a, Understanding, I want to ask Peter this one day. Peter, did you still think you could walk on water? Is this what was going on here? It's 100 yards. Now, I'm not a swimmer. I know some of you are swimmers, but 100 yards is a long way to swim. I think Peter still thought he had a little bit of water walking uh, power. But Peter gets there before they do. You know the rest of the story. They laugh. They talk. They embrace. It really is you, Jesus. What we saw wasn't fake it's really you jesus said boys come on i got a fire here bring some of the fish and let's have breakfast and that's what they do and then peter uh, is sitting there close to jesus and jesus asked him that question now we're not going to get into all the nuances of this question we could do that there's a lot in there but that's not my purpose this morning but essentially jesus says peter do you love me do you love me and he asked him three times, and it kind of broke his heart because the third time he realized, man, you know, I denied him three times. It's almost like, I see what you're doing there. I see what you're doing there. I denied you three times. You told me I would. I said I wouldn't, but I did. And Jesus is reminding him, yeah, it's okay, though. Do you love me? Peter did what some of us would have done. He kind of deflected a little bit. And he looked at John. You know, he and John were tight. They were good friends. John, he and John were in the inner circle. He said, he, he looked at John and he was like getting uncomfortable because Jesus told Peter, he told Peter something that he didn't, I don't think he told anybody else. 
he told Peter that he was going to die and how he was going to die. In the, in the service of him, you're going to die. And so Peter deflected and he said, what about him? <laughs> what about him, you know? If I'm going to die, what about him? Is he any better? And Jesus said, that's none of your business. That's what, if he would have been speaking English uh, or uh, West Virginia English, he would have said, none of your business. If he said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You know what I think he was really doing? He was getting to the heart of the issue here. Peter, you're going to die if you follow me. And here's my question for you, Peter. Will you trust me? Will you trust me in life and in death? Of course, we know Peter made the right choice. We, tradition tells us, not the Bible, but tradition tells us that both Peter and Paul were arrested in Rome by the emperor Nero, and Peter convinced his captors to let him be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord. Peter paid the price. He trusted Jesus in life and in death, and that's your question. So here we are 2,000 years later. We're talking to someone, and the conversation gets there. How do I know that there's really, thing, really anything after this life? Isn't that just wishful thinking? Aren't we just worm food? Don't we just fade into nothing? But the whole time you've been talking in this conversation, remember this. It, it, it's not about winning an argument. It's not about proving your point. It's about leading them to this question, leading them to the foot of the cross, where we get the answer to this question. That's what your conversation's been about the whole time. It just took you a little while to get there, but you're there now. And they're wanting to know, but if I die, what, what is there? Is there anything after this? And you say, ha, huh, I was hoping you had asked. Yes, there is. And you can prepare for it. Let's face it, death is the one thing that has haunted all of humanity, but with the inescapable thing that we all have to venture into. We're all going to die one day. And we don't have the promise, any of us, to live to be 80 or 70 or 60 or 50 or 40. You get the point. None of us have that promise so we want to know what's there. And so there have been a lot of people who have claimed to have died and come back. They've had near-death experiences, NDEs, seen lights. They, people have talked to them. But, you know, we can't really trust those things. But there is one person who can be trusted. And I'm going to tell you why here in just a moment. And his name is who? One person can be verified that has died and come back to life. And, of course, his name is Jesus and I have to remind you that all of Christianity, the sum total of our faith is based on that truth. If Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, if that's not true, then everything's in vain. Our preaching's in vain. Our faith is in vain. <clears throat> that's what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 4. So what do you think? Did Jesus really live? Is he alive? That's where we start today. Now, there's something called the Jesus myth where people say, he didn't really live. He's just a story made up. People made this story up because they needed a hero. 
and they've just made him up. Remember Bart Ehrman from last week? He's a, he was an active Christian, active in the mission field. He's a New Testament scholar uh, at, um, uh, I think, Duke University or somewhere. That tells you about their New Testament. But he's an agnostic. He's an agnostic. He was an active Christian, but he turned away from God because of pain, evil pain and suffering. But here's what he said about Jesus. He said, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and teacher. He was crucified in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. So, Ehrman says there's nobody that disagrees that Jesus really lived and was crucified. Nobody disagrees with that. So, he said virtually all historians, where do they get their information? There's lots of ways, but I'm going to give you three this morning. First of all, from ancient writings. The Bible, yes, but there are others. <clears throat> You've heard of a man named Josephus, a Jewish historian of that period. He lived a little bit, little bit after Jesus, first century. There's uh, Roman historians named Tacitus and Suetonius. There's a Roman magistrate named Pliny the Younger who lived in the second half of the first century. All these people lived in the same century. It'd be like you and I living here, and if some of us die in the 1940s, then somebody's born in the 1940s and they live after that. That's pretty good evidence that you know that you really were here. They can see the evidence of your family and your life. <clears throat> so Josephus wrote this. He said at that time there was a wise man named Jesus and his conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous. This isn't the Bible, this is Josephus. He didn't know Jesus, but he knew about him. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah. Remember, he's a Jew. Maybe he was the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. He's acknowledging that Jesus did some miracles. And the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. This is written by Josephus. And when historians try to figure out, did this person that they're talking about really live, they really look for two things. They look for, uh, you know, if it can be verified with writings, they look for how many, how many books were written about him during this time. How, how many people mention him? You know, historians have to put evidence together. So you say this guy Abraham Lincoln lived. How do I really know? How do you really know Abraham Lincoln lived? How do you know he lived? I mean, you don't really know he lived, except we got history books. And those history books uh, really go back all the way to the life of Abraham Lincoln. You can read from people who wrote about Lincoln while Lincoln was alive, and those books have been preserved. We have a better way of preserving them now than they used to. And so... <clears throat> Did Jesus really live? Well, let's see if people were talking about him. Let's see how many people were talking about him. Let's see how many manuscripts or writings we have that exist that talk about Jesus. And the second thing, let's see how close those manuscripts, their writing, is to the actual life of the person we're talking about. 
Now, the best preserved classical work that we have, humanity has, classical work, is Homer's The Iliad. Maybe you read that in school. They teach this stuff anymore in school, The Iliad and The Odyssey. Probably not. The the Iliad was a book written by Homer and uh, supposedly, you know, based on people who really lived. There are 1,757 copies of this work, the Iliad. That's a lot, 1,757 copies. It's pretty good evidence that Homer really lived and that maybe some of the characters he's talking about really lived. Pretty good, but maybe not convincing. And the earliest manuscript to, to this actual... Uh, event of the Iliad of Homer is 400 years. So it would be like somebody living 400 years ago and you you decide to write about it. Well, somebody could say, you're just making that up. How do you know that? You don't have any writings from 300 years ago or 200 years ago or 100 years ago? No, it's the first one. Take that and compare it with the Bible, the New Testament, the New Testament. There are 5,700 existing manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts for the New Testament. That's three times more than, than Homer's, the Iliad, three times more. And if you add other languages like Latin, Armenian, Coptic, Slavic, and Ethiopian, the number jumps by 15,000. And get this, they can date the earliest manuscript to Jesus' life at 40 years, 40 years, that is pretty convincing proof that there really was a man named Jesus who was a Jewish man who was crucified. Now, we don't have the resurrection in there yet, but we've we've proven that pretty much this is the way they prove it. We've proven that Jesus really lived and he really died at the hands of the Romans. And I think, you know, we can say with confidence as Christians that God not only inspired the original writings, but he preserved the transmission of the Bible. There, you know, there's, there's a blessing and a curse to having so many manuscripts. If you, if you only have two manuscripts, then they just have to agree. But if you have over 15,000, you know, if it's going to be legit, all of them have to agree on the major stuff, you know, on the major stuff. And guess what? The New Testament does. It does. There are, you could take this manuscript, that manuscript from anywhere in the world that it was found, and if it's the same, if it, it covers the same piece of writing, they're, they're practically the same. That, my friends, is God at work in the transmission and preservation of the Bible. So he really lived, he really died, but did he really come back to life. And this is where we get to the second line of evidence, and that is eyewitness accounts. Paul wrote this, and I know I need to hustle. Paul said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What he's talking about here are people who knew Jesus before he died, who saw Jesus die, and who knew Jesus after he came back to life. <clears throat> this is eyewitness testimony. Now, if you have two or three eyewitnesses to a crime, that's pretty good. If you've got one eyewitness that saw him shoot him, that's pretty good evidence. It's hard to argue with an eyewitness. What Paul is saying here is there are hundreds and hundreds of people who knew Jesus before he died while he was living. They saw him die or knew of it firsthand, and they saw him after he came back to life. That's eyewitness testimony. It is powerful. It's powerful Peter said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, there's one more line of evidence, I think, that helps us talk to our agnostic or atheist friends when we're talking about did Jesus really live, die, and live again. Jesus really lived, died, and lives again. That means that we, we have a chance to do that, and that's fervent conviction. Fervent conviction, it means that there were people who were so passionate that Jesus was really alive again. They were so passionate that they were willing to give their lives for him. Do you trust me, Peter? Follow me. Do you trust me in life? Yes. Do you trust me in death? Gary Habermas, one of the leading Christian thinkers on the resurrection, he said this. He said, such strength of conviction indicates that they were not just claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them just to receive some personal benefit. They really believed it. And the, if the direct witnesses really believed that he rose from the dead, we can dismiss contentions that they stole the body and made up the story. Why suffer and die for a lie that profited them nothing and cost them everything unless it was true now there have been people who've died for reasons of country patriotism kamikaze pilots islamic terrorists they're dying for a lie they're dying for a lie their leader their leader never came back to life or claimed to come back to life he just told them, if you do this, oh, you'll have an eternity and a great big party with virgins and all this, all this stuff will happen. That can't be proved. He never was there. He never even came back to life. Why would you believe that? Well, they're believing a lie. Millions of them. <clears throat> you, now you can believe that if you want to. If you'd rather take the word of a man who died and is still dead, nobody saw him after he died, or take the word of a man who died, but people saw him after he died, he was alive, and he claimed it before it happened, then it seems like it only makes sense to choose Jesus. So this guy's been driving down the road at 90 miles an hour. Remember this? We've talked about him. Let's suppose you're driving down the road at 90 miles an hour. You've got a friend with you, and state trooper lights come on, and he pulls you over. And before the state trooper gets up there, your friend looks over at you and says, Dave, you were speeding. Duh. 
The state trooper is going to give you a ticket. Duh. But I want you to know something. I forgive you. I know you're speeding. I know it's against the law, but I forgive you. It's okay. What do I do then? Do I pull it in gear and pull out? No. I didn't offend my friend. I offended the state. I broke the laws of the state. So the state trooper gets up there. This didn't actually happen, okay? State trooper gets up there, and I say, yeah, I know I was speeding. My friend told me I was speeding, but he forgave me. He said it was all right. The state trooper say, oh, well, if he said it was all right, keep going. No, I get a ticket. I get a ticket. Then I'm supposed to show up to pay the fine or show up at the judge and plead my case. Let's say I get up there to pay the fine. And in walks a policeman. Policeman says, hold up. I gave you that ticket. Because you broke the law. But I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it. I'm like, what? Yeah, he said, I'm going to pay for it. And he writes the check and he pays for it. I'm off scot-free. Spiritually, that's what Jesus did for you. He had to hold you accountable. You broke the law. You sinned. But on the other hand, he said, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it so you can stand in front of God innocent. You see, the cross was where God's justice and mercy were satisfied. We get the mercy that Jesus deserves. Jesus got the punishment that we deserve or the justice. In all honesty, I did have to pay a fine this week. I had to pay a fine. I was coming back from uh, Ripley area about a month ago. I just picked up my side of beef that I bought from Aaron Settle, Stumpy Creek Farms, look it up. And I had mine and the recovery house in there, so I had a whole cow in my vehicle was piled up everywhere. I didn't realize there was so much. It was in big blue bags. And right when you're coming into town in Charleston, you know, it's a speed trap right there. It's not fair. It turns to 60 right there. How many of you know that firsthand? Yeah, 60 miles an hour. I didn't get down there fast enough. Guy pulls me over. Sees all these bags. He said, what do you got, a dead body in there? I said, yes, sir, actually I do. I have a dead body. He, he just dropped it at that. He didn't ask. And then I said, well, you know, and I always, you know, I'm, I forgive me for this, but I always kind of pull out my military ID first. Then I pull out my driver's license, hoping he's a veteran. I got veteran tags. He already knew that. And then I throw out a name. Forgive me. You know, I should just take my lumps. He said, I don't know who you're talking about. I said, Dad, go on, I should have used another name. He said, I don't know who you're talking about. And I, I paid the fine. I paid the fine. It was only $72. I mean, it was a, too much money, but it was only $72. But spiritually, there is a name you can throw out. You can throw it out. Jesus. He's already there waiting for me. The checkbook is open. He already wrote the bill. He wrote the check, paid the bill. That's what he'll do for you if 
you'll make that choice. Lord God, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you, Lord, for paying the price for our sins. We couldn't pay it on our own. It could only be paid by your son who lived among us, who never sinned, who was tempted in every way, who bore the marks on his body of age and stress and exhaustion and anxiety. But he trusted you in life and death so that we could trust him in life and death. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here today who's never made that decision to trust you completely in life and death, may they not leave this room, may they not take a chance at going outside and getting in their car and driving down the highway or doing anything which might leave them without Christ for eternity. May they make that decision today. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. If you'd like to come talk to me or Joel, we'd love to talk to you about your next step. It might be putting your faith and trust.